Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to companies based in Europe to understand the unique challenges and the strategies that they have used to be successful in this region. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Chris Andrew to the show. Chris Andrew is Chief Product Officer for Hearsay Systems, where in this role, he oversees product engineering and design for Hearsay and is a general manager of Hearsay Relate. Chris was actually the number one employee at Hearsay, where he began as the company's first customer success manager and has played a variety of roles in product management, solution consulting, and the former head of Hearsay Europe, where I had the pleasure of working alongside him. Chris built a business in Europe from zero to dozens of strategic financial services customers in a very short time. And today we're going to dive into what he learned doing that. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, Anita. Great to get connected again. Thrilled to be on the show with you. Thanks for having me. Great. So Chris, I thought we could start off by actually talking a little bit about your personal journey. How did you go from being the first employee at Hearsay to now being the chief product officer of one of the hottest fintech companies in Silicon Valley? Yeah, that journey is why I joined a startup at that point in my career. I, out of university, I went and worked at Intuit, the makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, Mint.com, a number of fantastic solutions, and, and loved my time at that business. But as I really observed the skill set I wanted to go build, I really felt like a startup was going to be the place to do that. And so when I had the chance to join Hearsay as the first employee, it was knowing that I'd be really playing a whole bunch of different roles. While you might start in client services when there's only three of you around the table, you're reviewing contracts, you're selling door to door, you're working on marketing campaigns. And I think those first couple of years of getting a lot of breadth in different functions that I'd never been exposed to allowed me to provide value to the company as we grew and needed to shape different divisions across the organization. So I really prioritized putting myself in a place to provide value when different functions needed different things. And so it's allowed me to move across go-to-market and engineering product design, all while bringing that context further into, into the role um, that I'm in today. So that, that's a little bit about that journey. Hmm. Very interesting. So would you be comfortable sharing some fun fact that maybe people don't know about you? Fun facts <laughs> about me. Yeah, let's see. You know, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed getting to do in Europe was taking some courses in brick oven pizza making in Napoli, which I know we got to kind of partake in as a team uh, as we did a couple of events in that category. And, you know, one of my vacations I took in Europe, I got to go down to Naples and spend three weeks getting certified in brick oven pizza making, actually working in a pizzeria for a week, making pizzas for the customers and eventually finishing that up with a, a written exam and a test in front of a board of judges. And I've been able to find a lot of different ways to, to use that pizza skill throughout life. It's a great way to make friends. I worked in a bakery in, in London during my time on Sundays, making sourdough, brick oven pizzas, but kind of a fun, random thing that keeps me sane outside of the enterprise software world. Wow. I had no idea that you actually had to write an exam and present in front of a board. That is really interesting. They take their pizza seriously in Naples. I, th I thought it was a joke <laughs> at first as well, but when you sit down with a little 
blue binder and you had to write three pages about you know the scientific components of yeast and how the dough works and the different types of tomatoes that are approved. It was pretty hilarious, but they get good results for taking themselves seriously. Wow. Very cool. All right. So we're going to talk about Europe, but before we go there, I wanted to ask about hearsay systems. Can you quickly tell the audience, what does hearsay do? Yeah. So hearsay builds technology to support financial salespeople in having a a compliant engagement platform to connect with their customers and prospects. So if you think about a financial advisor or an insurance agent, they're really world-class networkers and relationship builders offline. But as the world has gone digital, they've struggled to translate that skill set into social media channels, text messaging, email, website interactions. And so very early on, Hearsay tackled the problem of first and foremost, making those new digital channels compliant, making sure that records were retained, that you could have a an understanding of how do you make sure the consumer is protected with the guidance that is being provided over these different channels? How do you make sure content is approved that they're able to leverage in these different channels? But in the end, it's really about helping facilitate a a human client connection over digital channels that the consumer prefers today. Um, So we do that today through a number of solutions and a platform that helps orchestrate those conversations again across social media, email, text messaging, cellular voice calling, and website interactions. We work with about 150,000 financial salespeople globally. I think that's 10 or 15 different countries, really organizations all over. And it's, it's really been an absolute pleasure to get to build out the business and, and tackle different problems throughout the years. Oh, that's really fascinating. And as we get into talking about Europe, I think what the product does and the fact that it's all about finance, the financial services industry and the regulations really come to add another layer of complexity when you're thinking about expansion. But before we go there, I mean, it is financial services. Given what's happening in the environment today, what has changed for hearsay? Obviously, it's a, a difficult time in the world. It'll be, it'll be interesting to look back at this discussion, I'm sure, a few years down the road, but we've all been locked up inside doing our best to take care of ourselves and our our family and neighbors and, and stay healthy. You know, I think what it's meant for our client base and for hearsay is that you never really know how a moment like this will affect the business, but essentially we've been building technology that allows financial services individuals to work from home, to work with their personal devices. And so we've seen really unprecedented demand and usage of our solutions in the marketplace. I can't remember the last time we were regularly working weekends and we've had to find ways to kind of establish some boundaries, but the urgency to enable financial services individuals to support their clients and prospects in a time where that human interaction and that advice is more critical than ever has resulted in a real uptick in demand and usage across our product sets. Well, that's wonderful. It's it's great to hear that the technology is really being used in these times to enable that personal interaction. Okay, so thinking about Europe, I wasn't there when you guys actually moved to Europe because I joined once you had established your headquarter in Europe. So going back to the beginning of when Hearsay was planning to launch in Europe, Can you tell me a bit more about how that came about? What were some of the reasons that Hearsay evaluated when they decided that this was the right time to go to Europe? 
Yeah, always a interesting question when you're a startup and trying to retain, you know, trying to stay focused on the opportunity and task at hand. But what we saw happening was we made the decision a couple of years into the business to stay vertically focused as a software as a service platform. I think there's some really interesting case studies out there from the likes of Guidewire and Viva, organizations that have been vertically focused and built very valuable, very beneficial platforms for the verticals they serve. And we decided to follow that blueprint. And what it meant was that given that we were only going to sell to financial services as we had quite a bit of penetration in North America, it made sense to start to evaluate what the opportunity looked like internationally. I think to be the type of business we want to be, we need to be able to serve financial services organizations beyond North America. And the opportunity really organically came to us. Many of these financial services institutions are multinational. And so while they have a, a brand we were familiar with in the US, you know, they were part of a much larger group entity or holding structure with headquarters in Asia or Europe or, or different places around the world. And so we found that some of our largest customers in the US, these were organizations like AXA and Farmers Insurance, engaged us from their really their, their parent entity or their group entity to say, hey, we'd really be interested in evaluating your technology for our team members in France or our team members in Switzerland or our team members in another part of the world. And so those sales cycles actually began from our San Francisco office, right? They happened remotely. They happened over, over the Zoom of that era. I can't remember what technology we were using at the time. Um, but eventually, some of those organizations traveled to us in San Francisco to spend time in person. And we were able to translate that into some early pilots in the area to get an understanding of the regulations, how the product fit for the different regions, obviously the language requirements. And that gave us some confidence that we should really start to think more seriously about what the expansion opportunity looked like. Nice. So to recap, it was really a combination of the customers wanting you to service their other locations and the fact that you had a good penetration in the US market and had reached a certain level of maturity in the financial services vertical that gave you the confidence to go for an expansion step. So when I think about how you might have been evaluating that, how did you decide where to go? Europe is a big continent and has lots of countries. So how did you pick UK? Was it just the language or did you look at other criteria for picking the United Kingdom as your headquarters? Yeah, I don't think I can speak to how Hearsay did it. And there's probably not a a formula answer. So for those of you out there considering opening an entity overseas or even coming from Europe to the US with your organization, I think a lot of different models worked. For, For us, you know, we were looking at the talent pool We were looking at proximity and travel flexibility. We knew that we would end up supporting a lot of different countries as we moved over to Europe. And so being able to access, frankly, easy air and and train travel to move to meet our customers and do quite a bit of the work that we do in person was critical. Obviously, language was a component of it. I have so much respect for so many of my European friends and colleagues that speak two, three, four, five, six different languages. You know, my Spanish and Italian is quite weak and and English is the preferred business language for hearsay. And so being able to set up in London allowed us to be a little bit more turnkey. In hindsight, we ended up so distributed as a team and as an organization that I think an organization like hearsays really could be successful 
from a number of different places. Today, I think we would consider Amsterdam, we'd consider Madrid, we'd consider a number of different places where all of those boxes are checked. You know, you can do business in English, you have access to fantastic talent, you have access to great transit, um, but those are really the uh, leading factors as we made our decision a number of years ago. And was it always the plan that you would try and get customers across Europe? You did not sort of carve out and say, we'll first try to get customers in this country and this country. Was it just sort of all of Europe as your strategy? Yeah, we did not pursue all of Europe as the strategy, but there was a couple different interesting things in play. The first thing I did when I agreed to take the role was actually just identify some of the largest financial institutions in Europe, names that you know many of us are, are familiar with, the Generalis, the Axas, the Allianzes, the Barclays, and did a lot of cold outreach over LinkedIn, but had something to offer, right? Said, you know, this is who I am. This is the business I've helped build in the US. I'd like to come and just grab a coffee, grab a dinner with you and, and learn about if there's an opportunity to work together on the different technologies that we're providing in the US. That focus on the largest financial institutions in Europe naturally brought us into four or five or six different markets because of the group and kind of parent structure a lot of these organizations. They're headquartered in one place, but they have dozens of different institutions spread out across the globe. And so when we became successful with one country, they frequently wanted us to go to a second, a third, or fourth and partner with them on the rollout plan. In hindsight, I would encourage those of you looking to expand to be really, really thoughtful about that. It's very easy to get spread thin. We ended up needing to establish some boundaries and say, look, we're just going to focus on these countries, given that we are there. But I think being a little bit more diligent about that out of the gate would be really beneficial. It was a lot of fun to work across these different places. It was a lot of travel. It was a lot of different language requirements. But in the end, it worked pretty well for us. But it's something I would encourage those of you thinking about expanding to evaluate really, really closely. Nice. So Chris, I'm, I'm thinking of how it would have been to be in your shoes. You're sitting there doing your job that you've now probably become very good at, having been at Hearsay for so long. And then probably the CEO, Clara, or the CEO, or someone comes up to you and says, you know, we're going to start Europe and we would like you to go. Or I'm not sure if it was the other way around and you had asked for it, but how did you prepare for this journey? How did you prepare prior to actually going to Europe? Yeah. You know, with the interest we were seeing from existing U.S. customers, we had started to explore some of these opportunities across Europe. We'd actually seen our our first team member come on board in Europe. We were starting to see the opportunities with a couple of prospects emerging. And so it was Clara that approached me about it. And I think it was also our, our COO at the time, Michael Locke, that said, look, if you can go over and help build this business, we think now is the time to really invest. And so when I agreed to do it, there was a two to three month period where you're working on visas and paperwork and I'm a bit of a natural lull. And I just started prospecting, right? And in my style, I don't come from a sales background. My style tends to be more on the product side. So it was really about educating the market about the product capabilities we had and how we could deliver outcomes for them that I knew they cared about, either around client acquisition or client servicing. And so it was very targeted LinkedIn in-mails that really yielded the first six months of crazy work across the continent as moving over to Europe. I think I had our first five to 10 kind of key exec meetings lined up because they were willing to learn. 
when you have something to bring and you're not trying to drive a transactional sale out of the gate, you're there to educate them about what's happening in the space, it was actually pretty easy to get that first round of meetings. Converting those meetings into business with any enterprise sale and hearsay specifically, it was anywhere from a three-month to multi-year journey. So that takes a bit of patience and perseverance. But the first six months in Europe, you know, were daunting at times as you figured out how to prioritize your time, how to hire a great team around you. And I know um, that's something I was extremely fortunate to have. We were lucky to bring you on um, not too long into the, the business's venture to lead all things on the marketing side and, and, and help so much on the sales development side. But really, the first six months were about creative outreach. And you and I actually translated that into moving from one-to-one off-the-cuff meetings to really valuable executive forums where we would offer a a dinner and a get-together and say, hey, let's get six to 10 executives who are all focused on marketing or distribution or compliance and all have good proximity to London, Zurich, or Munich, or Paris, and get together and spend five to 10 minutes kicking the conversation off about what's happening in the compliance space, the digital space, but really let the rest of the time in that conversation flow. And we, we landed a lot of significant enterprise contracts because we were able to bring people together to discuss topics that were new to them and then provide the technology that could solve the problem they were setting out to achieve. So some really interesting translations from one-to-one cold outreach to building those relationships and saying, hey, do you have any peers that you'd like to bring out to this dinner you know, so we can continue the dialogue. So those types of things work quite well for us. Yeah, very much in the education and advisory mode that I think worked really well for you, Chris, in the first few months of coming to Europe, positioned you well and probably made you much more open and people were willing to give you the time because you were not trying to, at that time, sell them anything. You were just trying to learn how things work in Europe. And actually, I think what's really interesting about hearsay is that unlike a lot of other software companies, Hearsay's product has a strong compliance element to it where the software helps to mitigate some of the risks that financial services firms have when they enable advisors to communicate on digital channels. So my question is, here you are thinking about Europe. Every country has a different regulator, different regulations. Tell us a little bit more about how you thought of that challenge, how you overcame it, how you built relationships to create awareness of your product offering and what it could do with the compliance community at large. Yeah, it's certainly been a unique value we've been able to offer as a business. As you mentioned here in the US, FINRA and the SEC have quite a bit of clear requirements and guidance that they've put forward. Things like a LinkedIn profile is actually a static advertisement because it's viewable by more than 25 people and it doesn't you know, evolve over time and therefore it needs to be pre-approved before it's put out there by a broker, dealer, or registered representative. There's requirements on record retention of, of being able to show that you can retain these conversations for a period of time. And so Hearsay offers some of the supervision and workflow capabilities to monitor. We do not act as an archive, but we enable organizations to supervise and have workflow around what is approved and what is not approved so they can meet these different types of requirements. And and we stumbled upon these things. I remember being in the Midwest with one of our early wealth management prospects and meeting a team of people that were literally taking screenshots of LinkedIn profiles and LinkedIn interactions 
printing them and putting them in file cabinets. And they were doing this every single week to show the regulators that they had visibility into what was happening so that really they could have a check mark against consumer protection. You want to be able to show that you're not misleading consumers with financial advice. And so you need to be able to show that you're meeting this need. And Hearsay approached the social networks and said, look, if you're able to work with us on APIs to solve this need, we believe we can open up the financial services space for you. So going over to Europe, I knew that that foundation was going to be critical. I knew that every country had its own you know, regulatory group or regulatory kind of advisory committee. So whether that's the FCA or that's FINMA in Switzerland, it's Boston in Germany, there's, there's a number of them. What, what translated was reading their materials actually engaging them directly where possible. So you could sit down and this may surprise people, you know, they're never going to take your guidance or your recommendations, but they will frequently sit down and go through the technology with you, help you understand the, the, the guidance or requirements they've put in place and listen to how you've built technology to solve these. They're never going to give you the seal of approval and say, XYZ company completely delivers against this, but they will work with you. And that was really, really important. I know a number of us from the Hearsay Europe team spent time in those offices all over the continent, listening to the guidance, listening to the revisions they were making on, on social media, and then showing how our technology was there to meet those needs as best possible. One of the big things that's different in Europe as opposed to the US is in Europe, it tends to be more guidance versus the US where it's hard and fast requirements in some places. That can be tricky because it's up for more interpretation. And so there then begins a big education campaign to say, you know, look, this is how we solve the problem. We understand you're thinking about it this way, but let's work together to make sure that we are following the guidance as it's been written. So in the U.S., it tends to be a little bit more explicit. In Europe, what I found is it's a little bit more guidance oriented. Hmm. Yeah, I remember coming in and I was pretty impressed that the day before the FCA released the guidance on social media in the UK, they had sent you a courtesy note um, telling you that they're going to be doing that. And I think that talks to the relationship building that you spend time um, investing in with the compliance community. So in that same vein, what are some of the things as a company you did to become known for compliance? in Europe? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that. You mentioned the note that they sent us. We spent a lot of time getting educated by these different groups and doing our best to educate them. And so there was a willingness for kind of work that was beneficial for both parties. They needed to educate a, a global audience about the guidance they were putting forward. And so we frequently had regulatory groups or entities like the FCA speaking at our events, right? They would come along and Hearsay would speak and LinkedIn would speak and then the FCA would speak. And that's maybe that's a little bit counterintuitive, but it was beneficial to them because they were able to make sure that the financial services organization in the UK understood what they had put forward. And it was certainly beneficial to us because we could bring together a forum of customers and prospects and educate them about the needs, educate them about the solutions we provide. And obviously not every one of these was going to work with hearsay, but it was immensely valuable in terms of building our brand as an organization that strove to provide value in the space. And, and your marketing team really did a fantastic job alongside our sales organization and customer success organization providing that type of value. So it was a mix of you know one-to-one -one events, 
intimate kind of executive forums where it would be just compliance team members, broader conference-like events, and then really producing a lot of content. We hired lawyers around the country. We worked with our marketing department globally to make sure that the materials were being packaged up in a very consumable way. So that, that list is never ending and you've got to keep it fresh. People don't want to go to the same event year in and year out. Um, and so I think as an organization, we got pretty creative about making sure we could provide value and keep it stimulating. Yeah. I think the two things I would repeat as a playbook, one would be to engage with organizations that can bring together a, a community of compliance professionals, but an, an industry organization that's vendor neutral because they then can get somebody like the FCA to come and speak because FCA typically would not speak at a vendor event. So I think working with industry associations who are also keen on advancing the education and the awareness around new technologies was a key tactic that we used that served us well. And I think the other thing that would help when it comes to um, compliance is really taking all that legalese in the different countries and the language and making that simple. Like we had our four pillar compliance framework, which was used in all the different regions and we could map what the different regulations were saying along those same broad four pillars. And I think having those kind of simple frameworks to understand regulation and to educate around regulation is another thing we could repeat as a playbook. Okay. I'm keen to move on to really understanding from looking back now, what do you wish you had known before you had moved to Europe? What are some of the biggest mistakes hearsay made or companies make when they think about moving internationally? Yeah, the biggest mistakes, understanding the dynamics per country is something I wish I had a better grasp on when I first came over. You know, I wasn't familiar with, for instance, the unions in France that frequently approve new technology for distributed teams before it goes live, right? You, you feel like, all right, you've spent nine months, you've built all the relationships across the executive team, you're about to sign the deal, and then you're learning about a requirement where the technology is now going to be presented to essentially an approving union before they determine if that audience wants to use their time that way. And they do have kind of veto power understanding how you could build allies there as part of a sales cycle is critical. Understanding the way organizations buy that is different from whatever country you, know, you started operations in. As I mentioned, this kind of group structure where there's a parent holding group that has a budget that is separate from the local entity budget is a very unique thing to deal with. It, it can be a positive and it can be, it can be a negative in that you know, sometimes they may initiate a project with group budget out of a innovation budget and pass it through to local entities. And then the second year, they're gonna expect that local entity to pick it up you know, with a functional budget. And so while you've been off building an alliance and kind of a, a reputation with one stakeholder, you need to have visibility into the new stakeholder that's going to absorb a program like that. These are all things that are you know, infinitely available to learn about, but when you're trying to wrap your head around all the different components of running a business, those were, those were challenging. You know, we mentioned one earlier just around thinking about the countries you want to prioritize and making sure your hiring plan corresponds to that. I can't stress enough the value of 
surrounding yourself with people that are that are better than you or have skills that you do not have. This is true for, you know, for technology skills, for marketing skills, for language skills, but really having a tight understanding of the hiring plan and how and when it scales so that you and your team are not getting burnt out is also a need. I remember those those first couple of years were just a, a nonstop dash and a very exciting one, signing meaningful business, but being able to sustain it meant hiring a team while you're facilitating those early transactions. And that's something that I would have started a little bit earlier is thinking about how needs scaled and how you could have a hiring plan that accommodated it. But I could spend an hour talking through learnings. Those are just two or three things that come to the top of my mind. Is there a hiring plan that you would recommend or is it so specific to the business? Yeah, I think it's incredibly specific to the business. I think I, I for one, really value having evidence and clarity that you are onto something before you start over hiring. I think the we've seen too much of this in, in technology in Silicon Valley where you're hiring based on a hope or you're hiring based on a, you know, go grab the market as fast as you can, disregard margin, disregard product market fit. Um, and, and you may think you have some of those things figured out, but the urgency to hire kind of clouds that judgment. And so I would still start small. We had a fantastic uh, sales individual. We had a fantastic marketing individual. We started to hire fantastic client services leaders. I would have just moved to bring those people in earlier and trust that the first three or four organizations that we partnered with that were succeeding with our platform, that there was more to be had. Um, I think I waited a little bit too long and frankly, got a little burnt out myself in that process and, and would have been you know, a better manager if I'd known that was coming for the first round of the team as well. If we just thought a little bit more ahead of saying, hey, look, this is translating. We now need to get the team members in place to absorb some of this and continue the, the success that we've seen initially. Nice. And from a personal perspective, I mean, this was obviously a tremendous experience, accomplishment for you. What did you learn from staying and working in Europe? What did you ex- not expect or how do you feel you grew as a person having had this experience? Yeah, I think I, I really believe that travel and friends from all walks of life is just such a critical component to having a rich life and having a rich perspective on the world. And one of the things I loved about London is I think in my first weekend, I, I met an artist, I met a musician, I met a model, I met someone that worked in the oil trade, I met someone that worked in textiles, I met a startup founder. You're just being exposed to so many interesting people and so many different worldviews that are that are beautiful and interesting, but contradictory and, and challenge your own. And I think that makes for just a more enjoyable life. You need to be able to work with different types of people um, to stay sane and to be successful. And I think Europe really presents that to you. And at the same time, I learned a lot about cities and how they work. Coming from the US, I'd, I'd traveled quite a bit, but the, the four years of living and, and working across Europe was obviously travel unlike anything I'd done at any point in my life. And you start to appreciate just the way a city works differently than the cities we have here in the US, the, the, the public services, the parks, the transit, the, you know, the, the fishmonger and the, and the cheese guy and the little farmer's markets that keep London neighborhoods interesting and, and keep relationships at that local scale provide something that's really, really valuable that I don't think we do as well in some places in the US. And so 
I really left with almost a, the feeling of a, a public policy degree in parallel to pursuing a European business venture. I and mean, have taken a lot of that back to you know, life here in the U.S. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, we do take those for granted. I mean, one more thought on that. I, think I, was, I was surprised to find how accessible London is. It's a, it's a big, expensive city, but if you seek it out, you know, the, it's accessible to everyone, right? You can go to the Royal Ballet and spend five pounds for a ticket and, and sit up in the highest seats, but have an incredible experience. Really interesting, they call them schemes. I always enjoyed that word around London where, you know, the Barbican would have events where the, some of the most incredible orchestra conductors in the world would come through and they do a rehearsal for five pounds. Um, and the tube is obviously a great equalizer. So while it's an expensive city and it's a complex city, I really did admire all the different programs in place to make so many different facets of the city available to so many different types of people. Well, we're waiting for you to come back here, Chris. You've made lasting friendships, which I'm sure you, you're still in touch with. So you're welcome here anytime. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to introduce like a rapid fire round. So just gonna ask you quick questions and just really one word answers on that would be good. What's your favorite book? Let's go with uh, Seven Powers on, on the business side. Um, a, a great new book I read on business strategies by Hamilton Helmer. Nice. What was the last concert you attended? Saw a great jazz show in New Orleans right before the lockdown kicked off. We did the company kickoff in January. Delphio Marcellus played at Snug Harbor and I'm a huge jazz fan. Incredible show and an incredible city. Nice. I have to look her up. I, I like to do other jazz recommendations. So look her up. What about your favorite city? Can you choose? Yeah, I, none of the, for none of these answers could I choose. I've got, I read a lot of fiction. I didn't get to cover any of those books. Favorite European city though would be London. I just think London is incredible in so many different facets. I've failed that one word answers here for your rapid fire. So I hope your future guests do better. Well, what is your favorite fiction in a book? I, I don't think I've got a favorite. I, some, some great ones I've read of late, Mislaid by Nell Zink is hilarious and outrageous and unique. Yeah, that's, that's one that I've, that I've really, really enjoyed recently. Nice. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. And I hope that the audience got a lot from your insights and experience expanding hearsay to Europe. And uh, thanks again for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, a great opportunity to share the great businesses that are happening across Europe. And uh, thank you for your friendship and your partnership over the years in London. It's great to reconnect and, and looking forward to tuning in for uh, future sessions. Awesome. 